1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the CR Podcast. In this week's episode, I, Helmi Pillai, will talk to our Deputy Director, John Springford, about his most recent cost of Brexit analysis, which is published in December, just before Christmas. Hi, John. Hi, Helmi. Could you start by telling us briefly what your main findings are? How how has Brexit impacted the British economy?
0: The modelling that I've been doing offers four quantitative estimates of the impact of the economy across four kind of key variables. The first one is GDP, i.e. the overall size of the economy, how much output is being produced. And in that instance, my estimate says that Brexit has reduced the size of the economy, UK GDP, by five and a half percent. The second variable is investment, and that includes both investment by the government and investment by the private sector. And investment is 11% lower as a result of Brexit. Um, and then the final two variables are goods trade and services trade. And obviously, leaving the single market means that you're going to have some trade impacts because we have higher trade barriers with the EU. And with goods trade, the, the impact is 7% which is actually a little bit narrower than previous estimates that I've made. And services trade broadly shows no impact whatsoever.
1: That's really interesting. Those are quite high numbers. So how does your model actually work? How did you come to these estimates?
0: Well, the estimates are based on the the fancy academic jargon for it is the synthetic counterfactual method. But I've just called it the doppelganger method. And the idea is that we kind of create a, a synthesized, or as the economists called it in in their report on this study, they called it a fan. UK. And the idea is that we try and create a counterfactual UK that didn't leave the EU. The way it works is we take some historical data from 2009 to 2016. So GDP growth, investment goods trade and so forth and then various other variables that so we're trying to find the economies from a bunch of other advanced economies that most closely match both the UK's economic performance in that period and then also just kind of the structure of the economy like how educated is its workforce that's one variable what's the inflation rate like that's another does it have a really big manufacturing sector is it quite open to trade? So these kinds of variables help us to find those economies that are really quite similar to the UK and also match its economic performance between 2009 and 2016 when the referendum happens. And then once we've matched those economies to the UK, then we can continue to see how their GDP and investment and goods trade did After the UK voted to leave or after it left the single market um, for goods trade and services trade. And then measure the difference between the actual UK data that we see and the phantom doppelganger UK's data. Um, And that's how we come up with with some sort of estimate about what the impact of Brexit has been on the UK economy.
1: So is it other EU countries that you're comparing the UK to or what countries are you using?
0: Some countries are in the EU. But there are lots of other economies as well. So the the way that I've done it is to take the twenty two most advanced economies, i.e., the ones that the IMF said were advanced economies in nineteen ninety five, because we want to get rid of some of the fast growing economies that are catching up with the older, more advanced economies. And they are across the world. So they're gen- they're, they're all OECD economies, but you know it also includes Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand. Japan, you know, advanced economies and they're the best types of economies to compare the UK to really because as economies get more mature, then their growth rates slow down and they're they're therefore better comparators to the UK.
1: You've been doing these analyses since 2018. Do your most recent findings match what you've found in your previous cost of Brexit analyses?
0: Yes, yeah, so I stopped doing these analyses during the pandemic for GDP and investments because the pandemic was just messing everything up. um, And it wasn't really right to do that. I continued to do goods trade because we could see clear impacts when we left the single market, which was in the middle of the pandemic uh, at the end of 2021. But these estimates for GDP and investments um, I did a previous estimate for these six months ago, and it's all very similar. So six months ago, the impact was measured at about five percent for GDP. This time it's five and a half percent. um and six months ago investment was sort of twelve to thirteen percent, and this time it's about eleven percent. The interesting thing that's happened is in Goods trade, where we've seen quite a quite a narrowing. I've been doing the goods trade doffer gaga since twenty twenty one well 2022 but for the end since since the end of 2021 and quite consistently the goods trade up again was showing somewhere between 12 and 15 percent hit but over the last few few quarters we've seen that that has narrowed somewhat uh, to about seven percent which i'm a, a, a little bit confused by i'm i'm digging into why that happens and um, have some ideas but i'm not quite ready to to share them yet we'll have to do some more testing and the services trade previously we saw that the UK was kind of outperforming other countries which is strange because you know obviously the city of london everybody thought that the city of london was going to get hit by brexit quite hard but again i'm not totally sure that we should rely too much on the services trade data which now shows no impact because the pandemic hit a lot of other economies quite hard in terms of their services trade because a lot of other economies tourism is a really big part of their services trade and obviously during the pandemic there was not the much tourism going on that's now recovering and we're seeing that the services trade is kind of growing more rapidly than that of the UK now. So we might in the future see some impact. But at the moment, services trade should probably be kind of ignored
1: speaking of the pandemic how, how do you know that these numbers aren't caused by the pandemic or the energy crisis or the war in ukraine more broadly how can you kind of distinguish between brexit and those other factors
0: it was genuinely extremely difficult in fact impossible during the pandemic itself to have any kind of estimate that was reasonable but after pandemic restrictions ended then we saw economic activity in most advanced economies rebound very rapidly, you know, as people went back out to work and and, and so forth. So I'm pretty certain that the pandemic is not now having a major impact on the, the estimates. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense because the pandemic was a shock that hit advanced economies pretty much equally right nobody was nobody did fantastically well you know maybe australia and new zealand and those countries that had a zero covid policy they did okay and certainly a lot better than the uk and the us and europe which didn't pursue those those types of covid interventions but after that we saw that european and us and canadian economies rebounded to their pre-pandemic size reasonably quickly. The UK is still a little bit below its pre-pandemic size and it's quite unusual in that and there has to be a reason why that is and quite likely that it's Brexit. On the energy crisis, this data this estimate is for the end of June 2022 and That was before the energy crisis really got going, before we saw the huge gas spikes in the late summer and autumn as a result of Putin turning off the gas taps. And so I'm reasonably confident that the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis isn't really causing a problem with these figures. However, it may well be that I'm not really able to make these estimates anymore in the future because... The differential impact of the energy crisis for the UK and Europe, for example, versus the US means that we can't really find a fair way to disentangle the impact of the energy crisis from the impact of Brexit. But overall, at least in this window of opportunity, I'm I'm reasonably confident that these estimates are are fair ones.
1: Why is Brexit causing so much trouble for the UK economy? And are they kind of factors that could be mitigated without rejoining the eu or is this just how it's going to be well it's
0: you know it's difficult to say in terms of the future impact how big it's going to be if we go back to before the uk left the single market and um, we had various forecasts which were made by the treasury and the london school of economics and other forecasting organizations where they had a sort of Various different methods of trying to work work out what the impact of having much higher trade barriers and also barriers to investment and migration between the UK and the EU, what impact that would have on overall GDP, for example. And the way that you do those models means that it's extremely difficult to actually say how long it's going to take for the impact to show up. Essentially, you just go, okay, we're going to put trade barriers into this model and then see we'll see how... The new what the new steady state looks like and almost always it meant that UK GDP was smaller. But we don't know how long that's going to take. We just assume that it maybe takes 10 to 15 years. And um, It could be that the impact has shown up much more rapidly and my hit of about 5% is around where the Treasury, for example, thought that uh, having a free trade agreement with the EU rather than being a member of the single market is around where they thought the hit to GDP would be. It might be that a lot of the hit from Brexit has come through I mean, we saw that trade barriers were imposed immediately, barriers to migration were also imposed immediately. And so that suggests that, okay, you know, a lot of the hit is going to come through. On the other side of the argument, we have seen that investment has pretty much flatlined since 2016. And what that means is that if you just have investment flatlining, then you're, you're not having the economy, you're not having investors in the economy, companies buy up new equipment, new computers, things that make workers more productive. And over time, you know, and in the future, that's likely to have a depressing impact on UK GDP. So it may be that while we've had all of the trade barriers imposed, and migration is lower than it was between the UK and the EU, that because investment has been stagnating, and if it continues to stagnate, then we'll continue to see a kind of speed limit put on the UK economy and continue stagnation. In terms of what we can do about it, it's very hard, I think, under a kind of free trade agreement framework, like the trade and cooperation agreement between the UK and the EU, to make big differences to the economic impact that we've seen. Because... The difference between a free trade agreement and a single market is quite big. Single market allows the free movement of goods, services, people, capital. A free trade agreement is much more limited. And the single market works by having a sort of pan-European set of laws which govern regulation, the rights of workers and so forth, which allows that kind of free movement to operate. And if you're under a free trade agreement framework, then... People, you know, the UK and the EU have much more sovereignty about what they do in their economic relationship with each other. But a good can't just be created in the UK and just sent over to the EU without any kind of standards or bureaucracy or checks getting in the way. And so, uh, without revisiting the single market question, I don't think we're going to see a big improvement. In the cost of Brexit.
1: Obviously, Brexit is a very political and divisive question. And some commentators have criticised your findings and your methodology more broadly. What are the main criticisms and how, how do you respond to them? How, how do we know that this isn't just a, a pro-EU way of mm-hmm. looking at the data?
0: So the two main criticisms that have been made are Kind of one that I've just been cherry picking the data and I've just chosen those economies which make the UK look bad. And the response to that is no, I haven't. The way that the model works is that there is a statistical process which I'm not involved in, apart from setting the parameters for the model, where an algorithm selects the economies that are most similar to the UK in that period, 2009 to 2016. And this is a way of avoiding cherry picking economies and just saying, look, we just want to find those economies that statistically are most similar to the UK and see how they do after the vote to leave and then compare the UK to it. So that's kind of one criticism. A bit more of a sophisticated criticism is made by some economists, Julian Jessup and Graham Gudgeon, for a, a website called Briefings for Brexit, I think, and they argue that the, the problem with the model is that it that we should really just be comparing the UK to larger economies within Europe because, you know, the UK and these economies are in Europe and so therefore there must be some similarities to them. They're about the same similar size, so they're kind of just better comparators. And those authors say, well, if you do that, you don't see any hit from Brexit whatsoever. There, there are some problems with that. One is that I looked at how the UK... In previous periods, so from 2009 to 2016, and then from the introduction of the euro in 1999 to 2008, how the UK compared to those economies in terms of its growth rates. And they're really quite different. The UK was faster than France, Germany and Italy, uh, had faster growth than France, Germany and Italy between 1999 and 2008. It had faster growth between 2009 and 2016, um, much faster than France and Italy because of the euro crisis. And actually, the UK's growth was much closer to that of the US. And generally, you know, the average of the 22 advanced economies that I look at. So actually, I don't think that the European economies that they suggest are the best comparators to the UK, um, because it was generally a faster growing economy. So that's why the method is really helpful, because it says, OK, we're going to take all of human judgment and human bias out of this we're going to fix on some data and try and decide let the algorithm decide which economies most closely match that data and therefore what's the best comparative for the economy final point there are some questions and this is you know this is a legitimate point which um, some other authors make uh, such as jonathan portes uh, at king's college london that it may well have been that the UK economy slowed after 2016 for other reasons. And also that the comparator economies that we're comparing the UK to might have grown faster than the UK for other reasons, because the method kind of fixes those relative growth growth rates in place between 2009 and 2016. And thereafter, they might have changed, which is a fair point. And the way that I've been Dealing with that is twofold. One is to reduce the weight of any one country in the doppelganger, the phantom UK. So, at the beginning when I started doing this, the US was quite had quite a big weight, but I've changed the methods so that the US only appears in the doppelganger uh, in the countries that are, uh, that the algorithm can select some of the time, and all of the other economies too, so that we don't end up with you know the US completely dominating. So that kind of helps a bit. And then I've just been using trying to use my judgment. So during the pandemic, for example, it didn't seem right to try and make some estimates when, you know, obviously, the UK had a pretty bad GDP performance during the pandemic, and it bounced back quite a lot. So it didn't seem fair to then use the model during that period to try and compare the UK to other economies, because something else was going on. But it's, no no counterfactual exercise can be perfect we should definitely be cautious about this and if there is a better model which comes up with lower numbers than mine then I'll be happy to say look you know I've exaggerated or this model has exaggerated the impact but so far nobody has really come up with a more sensible or fairer way of measuring the impact of Brexit and so I think really we have to go on the assumption that these quite large numbers are right and that this should encourage us or at least encourage the government to do some thinking about what it needs to do given the fact that Brexit's impact is quite big what it needs to do with economic policy both internationally and domestically
1: speaking of that do you think that these kind of numbers will have the power to change voters opinions or politicians opinions or is it just is Brexit too divisive to actually make these credible to those who support Brexit?
0: Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I, I I, just go on the assumption that we should be as honest as we possibly can about what the impact of Brexit has been. Um, and then we should try and make our policy flow from that. And it's clear that... Because of the pandemic, I think, and because of Liz Truss's budget disaster, and also because of the manifest problems of Brexit queues at Dover and the fact that we don't have as many workers here and so forth, which also, by the way, could be an impact, of the is, is, is an impact of the pandemic as well. The voters are starting to turn against Brexit or at least show some regrets. That doesn't mean that they want to rejoin. We shouldn't just assume that. But it does suggest that government policy can and should change course. And there are a couple of ways to do that immediately. One is to try and settle the Northern Ireland protocol, because if we end up with a, a big fight over that, then there's a risk of a trade war with the EU, and then these numbers are just going to get worse. The other is to try and have a more cooperative set of arrangements with the EU as far as possible, push the trade and cooperation agreements as far as it possibly can go. And there are a few things around the edges that you can do to try and improve that. And then the final thing is, you know, let's not rip up EU law in an exercise, uh, which Jacob Rees-Mogg, when he was business secretary, set in train, where by the end of the year all eu legislation that's on the uk statute books must be reviewed and changed and that you know and let's not do this all in a rush let's try and do this in a sensible way where we're like okay does this particular regulation in a cost be- benefit analysis help the uk economy is there a benefit from aligning to eu regulation in this area because it makes trade easier should we therefore keep it does this eu regulation actually make the that sector shrink or m- makes its economic performance worse. Okay, therefore, maybe we should get rid of it, if we're willing to make it a little bit harder for UK companies to trade with the EU. And by having this kind of thoughtful, empirical cost-benefit analysis, then you're going to do the least amount of damage, further damage to the UK economy. And so I think, sorry, this is a very long, long-winded answer to your question. But I think Knowing that Brexit has had significant costs on the UK economy means that in a rational world, we should be thinking about what policies can we do to, A, stop things getting worse, and B, try and improve relations with the EU and make more agreements with the EU in in order to try and reduce some of the damage that has been uh, enacted on the UK economy.
1: Thank you so much, John, for this very interesting and illuminating discussion. And thank you to everyone who listened to the episode. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the CER podcast.
1: If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.